Every decision they make can have an effect on our lives. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I never told anybody to lie, not a single time, never. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack. America's not the same as it was 100 years ago. The violent mayhem we have seen in the streets and cities that are run by liberal Democrats. This is Our Lives in Politics with your host Booker and co-host Lou Basada. Democrat? Republican? Regardless of what party you identify with, both can equally or should equally share responsibility for America's social and economic decline. The absence of common-sense solutions by those that we continue to elect have resulted in a weaker dollar, a weaker America, a weaker Western civilization. As the federal government grows and grows and collectivism, wokeism dominates society, it's at a cost of individual freedom and liberty. And many of us wonder what went wrong and how can we fix the mess we're in? I'm Booker Scott. Thanks for joining us here on America Out Loud Talk Radio or wherever you found us on a podcast. We appreciate it. Over 50 years ago, a group of Americans felt that same way. And in 1971, they created the Libertarian Party. Simply put, the Libertarians believed the country needed to get back to the Constitution, back to what America's founders had in mind, less federal government and more individual freedom and liberty. As a conservative, I've always identified with Libertarians, and really most Americans have a Libertarian streak in their heart. Many think of Libertarians as left of center on social issues, but fiscally very conservative. I'm happy to bring you a libertarian running for president of the United States in 2024. His name is Mike Termott. He has an extensive background in economics as he worked both in the government and for the private sector in that category. But he also has a law enforcement background. So we welcome to the program libertarian presidential candidate Mike Termott. Mike Welcome to Our Lives in Politics. Thanks very much, Booker. That uh, introduction was so warm and so accurate. I feel like I can hang up now and your audience has at least got the big picture. (laughs) Well, sometimes I think uh, maybe people don't even know what Libertarian Party is. You see this. Well, I think you're absolutely I, I think you're absolutely right about that. I ran for Congress a couple of years ago in Florida as a Libertarian, and I found that most of the people that lived in my district probably couldn't even spell libertarianism, Mm -hmm. had no idea what it represented. And so it's always an uphill climb just to explain that the party exists, first of all, and what the philosophy is. But I I do think that you hit it on the head. We are the philosophical descendants of the people who put together the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, and we believe did so for only one legitimate reason, and that's to protect individual liberties. As much as we believe that our government has let us down in in that regard in the couple of hundred years since. Certainly, we believe that, that was the, the legitimate purpose for our government in the first place. And at this point in our nation's history, it seems like there's a huge need for the Libertarian Party. It's just so hard to get a third party off the ground whenever it's discussed. Obviously, the apparatus of both the DNC and the RNC are always going to make it difficult for a third party to run for the presidency, but, and I know that you probably don't have the expectations of actually winning, but maybe you do. You're not in it unless you want to win. But other than winning, 
what would you like to see come from your campaign? What, what are you trying to pass along to the people of this country? I think that's a, a great question. There's a lot to unpack there, isn't there? Yes, I do want to win. Uh, no, it's not completely impossible. Yes, it's highly unlikely. And I think that winning for us looks like disrupting the American political process enough, in, interrupting the Republican and Democratic uh, duopoly, we call it oftentimes, the, the political duopoly, interrupting their pathway to just being able to assume it's only going to be the two of them uh, from now and until uh, a million years from now, just disrupting that so that a uh, couple of things would, would happen as, as a result of that. We hope to push each of those two parties in a direction that would reflect the, the need to take into consideration our ideas, right? That we would be able to demonstrate that while most Americans may not recognize the Libertarian Party, may not, not understand libertarianism at the moment, at the very least, I believe it's true that most Americans have a libertarian streak mm -hmm. and that we could demonstrate that if you want to win over a heck of a lot of American voters, you're going to have to take that into consideration. That would be a huge victory. Another victory would be, for example, if a year from now, uh, you and I were on the uh, on the show together again, and we didn't have to explain all over again that there is a libertarian party and what libertarianism is, that people would be a little bit more familiar. So there are other objectives, obviously, other than winning. But having said that, I do think it's important to mention that the Libertarian Party has a, a much greater opportunity in this particular election cycle than ever before. And I think that that comes from a couple of things that we all recognize, one being an enormous amount of frustration among Americans with Republican and Democratic leadership, and, and specifically the personalities involved. Uh, a lot of people are disappointed. Polling data shows this. I'm not just expressing an, an opinion. Polling data shows that a lot of people are frustrated with the individuals who are the apparent likely nominees of each of each party. And so that inherently uh, offers an opportunity to another party. So we believe that we have an ability to to gain some traction in a way that we haven't been in the past. Mike, what do you see as the three biggest challenges that our country faces now, and what would be the libertarian solutions to those problems? They're not all presidential problems. They're not all national political yeah. problems, and, but as and, long as and you I'm glad ask you, what the biggest ones are. Yeah, I'm glad you said yeah. that because I think, I think it is important really to point that out because that's another part of the question that I would follow up with, and maybe you can address it as you answer it, is that really small federal government means that the local state and local governments have more of the power, which is the way so many of us feel that our government and our country was set up. So I, when you, when you jumped in there, it made me realize, yeah, I, I do need to ask you that question about smaller federal <laughs> government. So, so, do, you know, there is a lot to unpack. <laughs> right. In well, fact, yeah, I would argue that one of the fundamental problems that's beneath all of the political problems we have is that we have too much power in the federal government. In other words, everything that you and I are about to talk about issue wise 
I believe is exacerbated by the fact that the federal government is too big and too powerful, takes power away not only from individuals, but from individual states. And and so that sort of underlies everything that, that we talk about. And a big objective of the Libertarian Party is to spin off power from the federal government back to back to the states and, and back to individuals for that matter. So for example, uh, three or four issues immediately come to mind. Uh, one, uh, having been a police officer for 11 and a half years until just a couple of years ago as a second career, I, I do believe that we need a measure of police reform to make that industry look more like other businesses. I think how, however you feel about police officers, obviously as a cop, I, I tend to be pro-cop, right? But I do not believe that we're doing communities a whole lot of good with slogans like back the blue in every case possible, right? I think that we do need uh, quite a bit of reform. Uh, I similarly resent people on the left who address the issue with slogans like defund the police. I find that wholly unhelpful, both uh, objectively, empirically, uh, as well as philosophically. Uh, communities have uh, a right to policing, but they also have a, a right to good policing and, and that's what we should all be uh, shooting for. So as an economist and a cop, I do believe that we'll be better off when we impose more market forces on the business of police work. Ultimately, what we want is for good cops to get paid more and mediocre cops to get paid less and crappy cops to get fired, just like any other business. And in, in that sense, I think that you would create a market in which you would attract even better people. Uh, you would get even better performance. You'd have better ways of holding people accountable. I also believe, by the way, we need more competition for police agencies at the agency level. Uh, if if that sounds familiar to the arguments about school choice, it should. Yeah. Because I think that a huge problem we have in the United States, as a matter of fact, I might argue that the biggest political problem we have in the United States is our crappy public schools and the fact that they have a virtual monopoly over their little geographic fiefdoms. I think that it really does underlie so much of what goes wrong in America at the individual level, family level, community level. I, I just think that the, the biggest impact we could have on moving our nation forward would be a competitive school system. So it really breaks my heart that we see schools that e even when they're decent public schools and there are there are there are a, a number of good public schools out there but the fact that they have a monopoly is just if it were any other industry you'd call it un-american right yeah uh but but for some reason too many people uh tolerate it in the united states and i think it's a bad idea so there's two issues right there that we have a lot to talk about but that are not uh, managed at the national level. They should not be managed at the national level. They are not, therefore, typically issues that get discussed in presidential races, but that we feel are very important. At the, at the national level, things that do come up typically in presidential races, one is foreign policy and one is economic policy. As a professional economist in my first career, I spent a couple of years working for the White House as an economist. I've taught economics at three different universities. I've worked with agencies, including the Federal Reserve System, a, a great deal, not as an employee, but uh, as, a, as a pain in their neck, 
Um, I have every respect for the Federal Reserve System, but I believe that we have to make fundamental changes in the way that we manage monetary policy in the United States and fundamental changes in the way that we handle fiscal policy in the United States. We spend at the federal level, at the governmental level, far too much money. And we can all argue about what a crappy job we do of spending the money. But even if even if you liked federal programs, which I don't, and I don't think you're a big fan either. Sure. But even if you liked the programs, the amount of money that is taken from Americans and spent by the government has gone way, way overboard. We need budget control law reinstituted in the United States. I certainly would back a constitutional amendment, for example, to preclude the government from spending a certain proportion of our national income. I think that we need to do whatever we can to stop what is what what has become a runaway train, right? There seems to be no practical limit to the amount of debt that our government is accumulating, that it's willing to spend. And I would fault Republicans just as much as Democrats. It used to be, when I was growing up, it used to be that you could count on Republicans to be more fiscally conservative and have more success standing up against Democrats. And that hasn't been the case uh, of late. So there's, it's a disappointment all the way around. Yeah, there's no difference between the two parties now. They just, they are addicted to spending our money. And we get very little for it. When you look at what they've done prior to COVID to now in the budget, which was $4.4 trillion, now it's $6.2 trillion. And what, what are we getting for that? Where's that money going? I, I don't see any additional services for anyone and I would like to know where that two trillion extra dollars went as we marched our way to thirty-three trillion. You mentioned a couple of times. It's amazing, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. You mentioned a couple of times about your background in economics, and you do have a doctorate from George Washington University, and you spent some time at the White House Office of Management and Budget. Um, I want to stay in the financial sector. You brought up the Fed there, and we see crushing. Yeah. We see crushing inflation, uh, with low workforce participation. Uh, about 2 million less people working today than were working in 2019. The Federal Reserve, they've uh, tried to do something to affect the change on the inflation and the job market, probably to increase unemployment to slow down the inflation. In your eyes, has the Fed done it right by continuing to raise interest rates? At the moment, I think that it is the right policy in a really crappy situation, but it is a situation to which they have contributed un, unwittingly. Uh, one might argue round or square whether they have followed the right policy and the right timing. The problem, as I see it, Booker, is that notwithstanding a lot of smart people who are well-meaning, patriotic, hardworking, trying to do the best job mm -hmm. they can, trying to do right by the American people, notwithstanding all that, they cannot live up to the mandate that we have given them. They have demonstrated this over the past 100 years. They get better at it, better at it, better at it. I've worked with many Fed economists over the years. I have every respect. But as an objective matter, you have to admit that they just cannot live up to the mandate of being able to time monetary policy correctly. 
so as to dampen the boom-bust cycle. In fact, Milton Friedman showed a generation ago that we would be better off with a rules-based system to control money supply rather than a discretionary system like we have now. And that's not, again, that's not to say that these people aren't smart and hardworking. You know, if, if you had to pick a group of people, um, I'm not saying I could come up with a group of people any better. I'm just saying that you cannot pick a group of people, ask them to do what it is that we have asked of the Federal Reserve System and expect better results than just controlling money supply as a rule. I would replace Fed monetary policy with a rules-based system. I would replace it with a rule that had a modest, constant growth rate in money supply. I would end the the regime that the Fed has now regarding its regulatory apparatus. I would make its regulation completely optional, give banks, the big banks, the chance to opt out of Fed membership. Most banks today do have a, a way of opting out of Fed membership, but not the big ones. And I would take away the Fed balance sheet and I would give it to the Treasury Department and make it subject to legislation because I am no fan of these midnight bailouts that the Fed is relatively unaccountable for. The Fed can make decisions with the snap of their fingers in the middle of the night. And there's really not much that Americans can do about it. It has not been good for our economy. It has not served us well in the long run. I appreciate the political pressure they're under at the moment. And that they do feel like, uh, you know, they don't want to exacerbate a recession, for example, by not bailing out certain institutions. I, I appreciate that. I appreciate the pressure they're under. But in the long run, by making these decisions, they have sent the wrong signals to financial institutions. At some point, we need to stop that and say, you cannot any longer be expected to be bailed out by an ag- agency of the federal government. Let's stay in financial stuff for a second. Central bank, digital currency, your thoughts, your feelings on that, because that is an emotional issue with so many people. Uh, they, it's interesting <laughs> yeah. that you said it was an emotional issue. I was about to say that it makes me sick to my stomach, but now I feel like I'm <laughs> redundant with your own comment. I worry about it a, a, a great deal. And, and the reason I worry about it is, I, I guess it's twofold. Number one, And I think that this is one of the reasons that people get so emotional about it. It would give the Federal Reserve System a way to monitor metadata on every transaction that that took place on on the blockchain and uh, to look into the details of every transaction eventually if they they so chose. And, And the technology is rapidly evolving to the point where it won't even be all that difficult for them to monitor transactions at that level of detail. In other words, your individual privacy would be absolutely gone. And I think that one of the things that bothers me and a lot of other people, I bet it it bothers a lot of people in your audience, that you cannot trust the Fed not to share that data with the Treasury Department or the Justice Department or anybody else. Yeah. Yeah, The IRS. It it makes my blood, yeah, it makes my blood run cold to think about sharing it with the IRS, the FBI or the CIA that has also proven itself utterly incapable of not nosing around in domestic uh, business. So I I think there are a lot of privacy concerns that are legitimate. These are not uh, conspiracy 
theorist uh, type of things that we worry about in the middle of the night. This is, you know, your federal government in action. It, it likes to take advantage of the information it can get its hands on. So that's a real concern. The other one, the other, the other reason that it, it worries me, that it bothers me, is that today we have a number of other currencies under development uh, that, that run on blockchain technology, Bitcoin, of course, and Ethereum and, and, and others. We don't know how that market is going to shake out in the long run. I, th- I think at this point we can say with a high degree of confidence that blockchain technology is going to change the world. It is going to change the world not only because of these currencies, but I believe these currencies are actually going to facilitate much more dramatic and important changes in how we conduct business, how we conduct business virtually, remotely, uh, at great distances in terms of contracting, monitoring uh, inventories, controlling assets. Once everything is on blockchain technology, the ability to control, uh, to trust counterparties is is really going to take a a quantum leap forward. It's going to be a terrific thing. But having said that, these markets are difficult to predict exactly how they're going to evolve. And we don't want to screw that up. (laughs) You know, if the Fed issues its own currency, what does that mean for Bitcoin, for example? Uh, the, The Fed is almost assuredly gonna issue a regulatory framework along with the Treasury Department, gonna issue a regulatory framework that absolutely advantages its own currency and makes it difficult for other currencies to compete. This is not what you want to have happen in a nascent market like this, you want to see the best ways of doing things. You want entrepreneurs to be competing, financial institutions to to compete, to figure out the best way to set up the various institutions and rules for making these markets work. And the Fed getting involved in it, I think, is going to uh, run a big risk of undermining all of that development. Let's talk about some social issues. Uh, so many people that listen to this program and Uh, are paying attention to what's going on in this country. They see things with our children. We see drastic laws in states like California, Oregon, Washington, where schools and the state can basically take away the child from the parents to transition them into a different sex. How does the Libertarian Party view those things? Are you as afraid of those things as so many conservatives are? How, how do the libertarians we're, come down on that? Sure, we're very concerned. Uh, well, look, uh, there's a, there's there's quite a bit to unpack here, right? And uh, as, as though your audience needs a, a lecture in the various aspects, I'll go through them real quick anyway to make sure that we're all on the same page. As libertarians, we are extremely skeptical of government intervention anywhere in our lives, right? But intervening in our family lives is i think the highest order of of repugnant and so we need to guard against this at least as much as guarding against anything else in america it's it's arguably the most disgusting and most threatening aspect of what governments are are want to do and you're right california is a leading example but it certainly is not the only example 
So we need to guard against the government having the authority to separate children from their families. Having said that, yes, we want parents uh, to be in a position to make decisions for their kid. This comes up all the time with uh, schools, right? We've all been frustrated by the extent to which school boards make decisions without the parents having sufficient control over whether it's curriculum or the library or or what have you. And and that's not because we necessarily agree with anyone's particular idea of what an agenda, what a curriculum, uh, what a library ought to look like. Uh, we can all have a food fight about that as far as I'm concerned. My primary concern is that it should be parents making that decision. When we stay in the social issue, I think we can't run away from abortion because it seems to be a hot button every time there's an election. I don't believe anyone really wants to solve any of these issues, whether it's the government paying for abortions or uh, people using abortions for as a birth control. Right. The the Dobbs decision, the Roe v. Wade, you know that I saw yep. that as totally as a Tenth Amendment argument, sending yep. sending, yeah, sending so it back I. to the state. We need to recognize that's the right thing to do, no matter how you feel about abortion. And I was going to ask you: Are you pro life or are you pro choice? In an from from the perspective of most political contexts. Uh, I think that you would have to call me uh, pro-choice, but I think that the the terminology is wanting here a little bit. Let me let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, and by the way, having been raised by a Lutheran and by a Calvinist, I'm not going to hide the ball. I'm not going to be <laughs> able to hide the ball here regarding how I personally feel about abortion, right? But as a libertarian, as a as a political activist, it's important that. I do not allow my personal feelings to come into this. And that's one of the big differences between a libertarian and, for example, a Republican, is that no matter how strongly I might feel about some social issue, I believe that it is extremely important that we not allow the government to make cultural types of decisions for us. You remember Breitbart saying that culture is upstream from public policy. Mm -hmm. This is an extremely important concept. We must recognize that public policy is and has to remain downstream from culture, especially when you preclude people from doing something, especially when you make something criminal. Of all things in public policy, especially your criminal code must be downstream from public policy. It's one of the big problems we have regarding uh, the war on drugs, which we can talk about in a few minutes. So let's not go there quite yet. So what I'm saying is I don't like the idea, as, as much as I may personally dislike abortion, I don't like the idea of the government criminalizing something before it's ready to stop, before it can stop it, before the culture is ready to give it up. That's where you create black markets. That's why we have black markets in drugs. That's why we have black markets in immigration, because the government makes things illegal that it has no ability to stop, or at least at the border, no willingness to stop it, right? So I don't want a black market to be created. I do like the idea that it was sent back to the states. Each state is going to have to make up its mind where to draw 
align in in gestational time as much as this whole conversation bothers me in an ethical level and i know that for many of your listeners uh they are cringing right now also mm-hmm. because i know i am i personally am cringing right now because i i just don't like abortion i don't like this subject i don't like the topic i don't like to talk about it yeah. but talk about it we must yeah sure you, you did right to to bring it up my point is that the American public is not going to put up with either extreme. The American public is not going to put up, in my view, the American public is not going to put up with a rule that says you can have an abortion up until five minutes before delivery. I recognize there are some politicians who would put up with that. But by and large, I don't think that's where our culture is. Uh, thank God, by the way. Similarly, I don't think our culture, our people, our citizenry, is in a place to say, ban abortion completely, you know, five minutes after conception. Sure. Uh, An abortion at that point in time should be illegal. I just don't think the American public is there. And so given those two extremes, I think are off the table. States are gonna have to figure out where to draw the line in gestational time along that spectrum. I think there's one more important idea that's that's worth sharing here now that you know we've offended everybody right (laughs) um there's one more concept that i think is really important sometimes it makes me feel better sometimes it makes me feel worse i do believe that in the grand fullness of time and i don't really know what i'm talking about there i don't know if it's going to be 20 years or 200 years i but it's it's not going to be 20 days Okay, but in the great fullness of time, we as a society, long after I'm gone, we as a society will look back and you will have to explain what abortion was. I do believe that this is a concept that will run its course and that will become virtually unheard of eventually. And I think that that's because of technological advancements yet to come. And I think that cultural change yet to come. I do believe that eventually our society, our world, our people, our species will put this in the rearview mirror. That is cold consolation for many of your listeners who dislike abortion as much as I do, right? Yeah. yeah. But I do believe that to the extent to which this fight is worth having, and I believe it is, by the way, I think that. It's going to have to be fought in a cultural context. If you hate abortion, I encourage you to grab a picket, put a sign on it, and do some marching, right? Get involved, uh, but get involved in a cultural way. Uh, I'm just not a fan of using the government to advance that cultural cause. Does this make sense at least? You it can does. disagree with me. You can be mad at me, but <laughs> no. does it make sense? It does make sense. And <laughs> I think it's a I, I think it's a wonderful dream that we can all dream that someday that's gonna be in our rear view mirror. And I hope I hope and pray that you're yeah. you're right on that. And uh, Me too. I got no guarantees, right, Booker? <laughs> None of us do. None of us do. We're going to take a break yeah. here, and then we're going to come back with a few more issues. Uh, you mentioned drugs a few minutes ago. We'll get into that when we have a discussion about the border. And then I'm going to leave it up to you. 
I'll leave it up to you, Mike. I want to want to let you kind of wrap it up, give you the stump to stand on to make your stump speech to everyone that's listening to our lives and politics here on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Cofix RX nasal solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flus, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. Millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of the toxic spike protein. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed their spike support formula to counteract harmful spike protein from COVID-19 and vaccines so you can feel your best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system becomes less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to AmericaOutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code OUTLOUD. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought. AmericaOutloud.news, delivering a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. In the fight for liberty and justice for all. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Welcome back to Our Lives and Politics on America Out Loud Talk Radio. I am Booker Scott. Thanks a lot for joining us as always. We have with us presidential candidate for the Libertarian Party, Mike Termott, is joining us now. He has a background in economy. He was also a police officer in South Florida for about 10 or 11 years after his uh, career as a a, 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 a economist. I'm sorry. 
uh, wanted to make you a politician when you really haven't been one, have you? But you're trying to become you, one. You must be mad at me if you're calling me a politician. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is so true. But let's let's go now to, you know, at the beginning of our conversation, I asked you about three things that really stood out. You mentioned a couple, but but you didn't mention the border. And, you know, I know you have been to the border. I have called the border a human crisis for a very long time, well over a year. When you see the death that's happened with the migrants crossing there, nearly 2,000 have died crossing. It's probably a lot higher than that now. You have 365,000 kids that have come across unaccompanied. You have 85,000 kids allegedly lost somehow, some way. I don't know how that happens. And uh, and all of that, you have 120, 130,000 Americans that have died from fentanyl overdoses. Of course, the fentanyl comes from China through the Mexican border, and the cartels are getting rich, and the American people are suffering because of it. Solutions for that. This is another one of those things, like abortion, that I believe neither the left nor the right really want solutions for because they gain votes and they gain donations because they don't have the solutions. They would rather argue and fight about it to get people emotional than they would to actually come with solutions. What would Mike Termod come with for solutions for the border? I agree with you wholeheartedly. And and I think that we should be frustrated with the Republican party and the democratic party, because while it is complex, it is difficult. Uh, certainly there is no silver bullet. Notwithstanding all of that, there are things that we can do. There are very specific things that we can do to to make this system better. And I'm glad that you opened up with describing it as a humanitarian crisis. You're right. I've been down to the border. I've talked to ranchers with property along the line. I've talked to Custom Border Patrol and the sheriff's office and local leaders, libertarians uh, down at the Arizona-Mexico border. Everyone's frustrated. No matter where you are on this issue, no matter which aspect of it strikes you as most important, there is a reason for anyone and everyone to be upset with the way our government has handled it. The humanitarian crisis is much more significant than, shame on me, I had given it credit for until I had made the trip down there to talk to officials about it. It is so bad, Booker. That Well, the truth of the matter is, on your family show, we can't describe exactly how bad it is. Sure. But most people who come in the United States come through illegally. Most of the people who come through illegally use some form of a service to get there. They call them coyotes on the other side. So often the coyotes bring people to the border and then put you in touch using an app, by the way. Yeah. You don't even have to have a personal relationship with people on the American side of the border. Using an app will put you in touch with someone who will whisk you away. And so often this is the first step toward a life of indentured servitude and worse. It is absolutely heartbreaking to give you to give your your audience a feel for one of the most frustrating conversations I had while I was there, I talked to the sheriff's office and they told me that one of their oddly difficult challenges besides trying to shut this down. And as the sheriff's office, it's not your job to patrol the border, but to pick up the pieces, right? Customs and border Mm -hmm. patrol patrols the border itself. One thing that they wrestle with is young deputies 
going on high-speed chases trying to catch these cars that pick up the illegal immigrants. And the reason, uh, just as background, um, having retired as a cop just a couple of years ago myself, there's a big push on the United States to, to reduce the number of car chases that people go on because they're just so dangerous. It's just not worth it, right? So, for example, our police department stopped chasing stolen cars. We stopped chasing for property crimes altogether. We only chase for violent felonies. That's it. Well, they're having a dickens of a time stopping young deputies from getting into high-speed chases. Here's why. The deputies know that if they don't catch that car, what's going to happen to the people that are being yeah. taken away? Nobody knows. Yeah, it's bad. Yeah. And, you know, uh, a lot of a, a lot of get mad at police officers, and I get that. A lot of your audience may be, you know, anti-law enforcement. That's fine. But put yourself in the shoes of a young man or woman who signed up for this job to protect people, right? Very few people go into this line of work to, to be a jerk, right? We all recognize that police work sometimes goes wrong. We need to hold people accountable. I'm all about it. But these are young men and women in Arizona and in New Mexico and in Texas and in California who sign up for this job to do the right thing by people. And you see someone get into a car and you know that their life is about to become a living hell unless you can stop that car. And your boss says you're not allowed to go on a high-speed chase. That is an ethical conundrum and has proven to be a bit of a challenge in some of these local border communities. That's how bad we understand the humanitarian crisis uh, to be. So having said that, yeah, being a libertarian, I'm no fan of using federal resources for almost anything, right? But one of the few things that I would use federal resources for is to do two things at the border. One is to improve the way that we bring in immigrants illegally. I recognize the American public is not going to be comfortable without some sort of vetting process, sure. right? We don't want a completely open border. I appreciate that. But having said that, when I worked for the White House, we could vet someone in in 90 minutes. So don't tell me that it takes weeks and months and you know years later hearings to make up your mind whether you're going to let someone in the United States. It's just, it's, it's a lot of crap. Yeah. So I would improve that situation. And then I would surge resources to decrease illegal immigration. With all due respect to President Biden, and that's a very difficult phrase for me to no. utter, but let me continue. I hope so. With all due respect to President Biden, it is absolutely untrue that that border is under control. It is an open border. I stood there with a rancher at the border, and he pointed out, you see where the wall ends? <laughs> yes, sir, I do. He says, on the other side of that hill, you can't see. Well, neither can the sheriff's office, neither can CBP. That's where everybody comes over. They're obscured by the terrain. The wall ends. There's no reason not to come over. And to be fair, and, you know, Booker, uh, you know, I've raised kids. Um, 
if I were in Mexico uh, and I was not one of the one or two percent elite, uh, I got to tell you, uh, I'm thinking about running that border myself. Yeah. I mean, as an American, I got to look at someone who's growing up in uh, Nicaragua or Honduras and say, why, why not? Like, why are you not running that border? Because it's, it's probably a good idea. It's risky. I appreciate that. But if you can keep your family intact, not use these coyotes, not get involved with the bad people on the other side, this is something that you can do to improve the lives of your family. And these are people that make uh, so often in my view, make America better. America. One of the things that defines America is our immigration, of course, over the over the centuries. But the way that we handle it now is an embarrassment. It's an embarrassment, I believe, to America in front of the rest of the world. The way that we treat these people, the way that we separate children from families, uh, the way that we treat people on the way through. By the way, telling people not to work, I I view that as as bass backwards. Yeah. Uh, I would much prefer a policy that says you better go to work. <laughs> you know, this is not a place to come for the lazy, right? Uh, I'm going to call you in six weeks. Make sure you have a job. Well, as long as we keep I'm giving them a, money, they're not going to work. I, I, that's exactly <laughs> right. Know? And so you got to make sure that they don't have access to welfare programs. Um. You know, to the extent to which there's anyone coming over here incentivized by such, we need to nip that in the bud, right? So I'm, I'm hearing, Mike, I'm hearing you say that we need a sovereign nation. We need, you didn't say a wall, but you, we need to stop illegal immigration. We need to make it easier for people to migrate here when they need to and make that process faster. So the people, let's say that number is 25, 30 million people that are already here, that are here illegally. Do do you give them a pass? Is there amnesty for them, or are you deporting them? That bothers me a lot either way. So I'm not going to pretend to have a silver bullet here. But uh, consider a couple of principles. One is, uh, as a practical matter, you can't deport a large proportion. Uh, President Obama deported more than anybody else and barely made a dent. Um, so as a practical matter, however we may feel, I don't think that deportation is going to change the, the look and feel of the problem that we have. Ethically, I get it, right? Ethically, I get it. You got here illegally. You broke the rules. You shouldn't be here. Um, you know, that, that needs to be unwound. However, as a law enforcement officer, I can tell you that deportation is one of the most dangerous things that you can do. So I'm not sure the juice is worth the squeeze. Yeah. Let's put it that way. Um, the other thing, and I realize that that's not that's not much of an answer, right? You know, you're talking to a libertarian well, because you want to talk <laughs> ethics and principles, and I'm giving you a, a little too much of practical reality. Um, the other thing that strikes me is that if we had the policy, let me see if I can articulate this correctly. If we had the policy in place 30 years ago that I would like to have in place 30 months from now, those people would have come in legally. In other words, what I'm saying is I think that on some ethical level, we bear a little bit of responsibility, not completely. I'm not trying to let people off the hook, right? 
But I think that we bear a little bit of responsibility for creating this system in which there's a huge incentive for them to come over. We make it very difficult to get through legally, amazingly easy to get through illegally. Mm -hmm. And then we get all upset when they do exactly what any economist would predict that they would do. You see where I'm going? Yeah, we give them a couple of thousand dollars a month at a place to live. So, well, yeah. that I hate, <laughs> right? That I hate. Yeah. Um, but I also hate what our government does to create black markets at the border. We create black markets in terms of human trafficking that are so dangerous, and we create this black market in labor where people run the border illegally. Uh, you know not trying to argue the ethical matter round or square. I'm just pointing out as an economist, if you don't run that border, I got to interview you and ask you why not. Like, you know, you made the decision to stay in rural Mexico and raise your family there. What, what's up with that? How did you come to that decision? Right. Yeah. And so we see these things happen. We see these things play out exactly as we would predict. And then we get all torn up and angry about it. Well, the American public should be angry, but I believe that the anger should be directed at our government. Let's let's consider for a moment that one of the solutions would be to deport everyone that was here illegally over the last 30 years. What does that look like to the economy of America? All of a sudden I think it's problematic. Yeah, I don't um, think I don't think people think that part through. Uh number one logistically, you're moving people out of the country. The financial part of that, but then the financial part to each one of us individually, when 30 million people disappear and they're no longer there working the jobs that we depend on them to work. Uh, you know, a lot of them have been here for a long time and are, are hard workers and, and they pay their taxes. So all of a sudden one day they're gone. So I think, I think, you know, from my view, I think sometimes people on the right, uh, they get to that point where deport everyone and then people on the left are let, let everybody come in. And neither one of those is probably a workable solution to the solutions that we have to the problems that we have on the border. And yet we understand them both, don't we? Yeah, you know, sure. you can, you know, you appreciate why uh, a hardworking American who follows all the rules would be annoyed by someone having a lot of the advantages of living in the United States without having followed the rules. That's annoying. Uh, it should be annoying. It should be annoying enough that you pressure your government to close the border and, and do things right. Um, and at the same time, on the left, I, I appreciate how people feel that uh, we're a nation of immigrants. Immigration is good for us. When it's done right, it's very good for us. It's one of our defining characteristics. It's good for our economy. These are the type of people you want to have come in, the people that are willing to work and take risks to benefit their family and to pursue a better life for themselves. That's all good American stuff. Uh, but uh, you're right. We seem to have gotten ourselves into a bit of a pickle here. And now you're sounding awfully uh, practical. And I, I know that your forte is being a super ethical guy, too. So now that you got the two of us talking and you know, down to brass tacks and being all uh, practical, maybe we should move on to something else so we can be impractical. But <laughs> you are correct. The, the immigration issue is full of practical realities that really undermine polarized 
ethical solutions. I think we've hit on some key subjects for our audience and our listeners. You know, we've we talked about school. We talked about school choice and the kids, the trans movement, abortion. We've talked about the border. And we talked a little bit about drugs and the fentanyl. Um, we've got just a couple of minutes here, and I'm going to leave it to you to talk to the people about what you would like them to know about you and the Libertarian Party and your view of America. Well, I appreciate that. Of all the things that you just listed there, I personally am the least interesting. Uh, I grew up uh, in commercial finance. I was a banker. I, I grew up a fiscally conservative uh, Republican, right? Uh, I became very uh, disillusioned and disenchanted and disappointed with the Republican Party back when my boss's 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 boss, George Herbert Walker Bush, had said, read my lips, no new taxes, and went back on that pledge. That was a, a tough moment of awakening for a young fiscally conservative economist in the banking industry, as you might imagine. I eventually came to libertarianism because I believe that we had to separate cultural issues from our public policy issues. And that's when I came to libertarianism, not only from what I would call the right side, the conservative side, which is to say fiscal conservatism, but also the social, uh, socially liberal side, which is not to say that you should live your life in a way that is, you know, uh, just with without guardrails. That's not what I, I mean at all, but that those guardrails ought to be set up by you and not not the government. And so I really came to the conclusion that libertarianism made a lot of sense for America because Americans have a libertarian streak. They probably wouldn't characterize it as such. They might not recognize it in themselves as such, but most Americans want to live in a nation in which everyone's views are respected that you would stand up for your fellow Americans, right, to say whatever maybe dumb thing he wants to say, right? Most Americans agree that we want to live in a pluralistic uh, democracy, tolerant of different views and different lifestyles. This is, after all, the American way, that we should not be using our government to impose certain values on individuals. The culture wars are worth fighting, but I just don't believe that they should be fought in the state house. And in this sense, I think that the Libertarian Party does a better job of aligning with American values than the Republican Party of late and the Democratic Party of late. If you signed up for the Republican Party out of fiscal conservatism, you've been disappointed. And if you signed up for the Democratic Party out of some sense of believing that they would stand up for social liberalism, I think you've been disappointed there as well. The Democratic Party is not socially liberal in any real practical sense anymore. You must feel the way the Democratic Party does or they will ostracize you. They will cancel you. You will be deemed uh, not woke and less worthy, and that's not the libertarian way. As anyone knows who knows any libertarians at all, libertarians are like most Americans. Will have an argument, we'll punch each other in the face, and then we'll go have a beer together. We do not expect that Aryan Party a look because we do a better job of aligning with Americans' values, values of 
not only fiscal conservatism and being socially liberal, but our values of standing for a foreign policy that encourages everyone to get wealthy instead of everyone going to war, that encourages reform of our school system, reform of our, our police systems. And I believe that ultimately, libertarianism and the Libertarian Party in particular can play a role in American politics. We can disrupt this notion that you only have two choices. We represent a stark, differentiated choice from the others. And I hope that people will give us, uh, give us a look. I think that most people recognize we need a new relationship with our government. We're here to, to help fight the way back toward the Constitution. No one else is going to do that. Mike, thank you so much for making the time to come join us here and give us a different perspective. I know a lot of times I stay in the weeds on the right side of things, on the conservative side of things, and I think it's, it's really good to have a different perspective on solutions and ideas and, and a thought process. Mike, thank you very much. His name is Mike Termott. He is running for president of the United States with the Libertarian Party. Thank you again for making time. Thanks very much, Booker. You have a wonderful show. I've really had a good experience with you. I look forward to talking to you next year. You've been listening to Our Lives in Politics on the America Out Loud Network. Mm-hmm.